You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Welcome again to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. Uh, we're here to wrestle with our text for today, which is Exodus 2, 1 through 10. And we're really going to be in Exodus uh, all the way up until Easter. So up until um, at least the week of March 25th uh, will be the Sunday where we cover Exodus 12. So you have a real opportunity with your life groups to teach slow and steady and deep through uh, a text. Over the course of two months, we're only going to cover 12 chapters. So I really encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, don't rush. Let the main thing be the main thing each week. If you don't get all the way through something, no big deal. Just hit it up. Just hit it up the following week and continue on with what you need to continue with. So uh, that's just, just plan accordingly, I guess is what I'm saying. And I'll be with you here walking through it the whole time as well. Uh, we're going to have a lot of stuff to get into. Um, definitely the dating of the Exodus. We'll spend a little bit of time on that because I think it's good to know. And with, with all of these Old Testament um, archetype stories that we have, we have to be on guard apologetically because you get a lot of other ancient Near East stories that are very similar to this. So part of what we'll be doing is preparing our people to have the necessary cultural conversations, both in the context of Judaism and what Moses means there as the lawgiver, but then also in context of the atheist or the agnostic that may uh, accuse some of these stories of being made up or simply borrowed and fictional. I mean, sort of the payoff of that type of argument. So we'll learn how to respond to those as well. Uh, and, and we'll talk about one today, uh, Sargon of Akkad, uh, who has a very similar story about being lost in a basket and, and then found again. And we'll highlight some of the differences in that story versus Moses and then talk a little bit about dating to set the stage for that. One thing that's good to highlight for your group members is Moses's, and I'm assuming mosaic authorship of this, but Moses's intentionality in connecting the Genesis stories with the Exodus story. So these things may not have um, come down together immediately in the oral tradition, but the beginning of Exodus 1 with the genealogies and a little bit of a retelling of the latter portions of Genesis connects Exodus with Genesis so that we see it as God's overarching story so that God is consistently working throughout all of this. And we have to help our people understand what the Bible is here, that the Bible is a collection of, of a number of texts, books, poems, stories, etc. Historical biography is where I'd put the Gospels. And all of these things are independent in themselves and then these things are woven together uh, as one unit we call the Bible, which tells the story of God reconciling his people to himself. Uh, of course, his glory and our joy and eternal bliss in his presence. But we need to help our people see that, um, not to look at these things independently, uh, as much as I do like digging into the minutiae of the particular words, and I'm going to do at least one of those today. We can't lose sight of the bigger picture and pointing out to your groups that Moses likely intentionally connected these genealogies from Exodus to Genesis so that his early 
hearers and then later readers would be able to see the continuity of God's work in his people is so crucial. And then we certainly need to see that continuity all the way up until today with our work as disciple makers. So take some time to set that initial stage and groundwork for uh, what the Exodus is doing. And then, as I'm going to talk about now, we uh, connect it with the rise of Joseph and then ultimately the birth of Moses. Uh, So a number of big things to be pointed out in this text. I think the first is just to keep in mind well, I mean, just to keep in mind the the whole course of the next two months is about God delivering his people. We talked a little bit last week about meta narrative, about these large overarching stories of scripture that uh, ultimately point to Jesus and ultimately point to the reconciliation of God's people to the triune Godhead. So I, I gave you the paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, this week I want to talk about covenants and captivity. Covenants, captivity, deliverance. Covenant, captivity, deliverance. And we see this over and over again. Uh, and, and again, that's a subset of that larger meta narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So we saw, if we had read uh, the previous chapters in Genesis, just before the launch of Exodus, we would have read about Joseph. And we know certainly the cycles in Joseph's life. Uh, where he was had the, the prophecies very early on that the sun and moon will even bow down to me. So my parents, which was just an incredible thing to say in the Hebrew culture and maybe even modern culture too, but you, my parents, are going to bow down to me. Likewise with all my brothers, they sell him off. And then we just get these ups and downs, peaks and valleys through all of Joseph's life where he um, is put into slavery and then restored, becomes prominent in Potiphar's house, then gets jailed. But then he's restored because of his interpretations of dreams, ultimately becoming essentially, I guess, the prime minister of Egypt, becoming very prominent, very wealthy, given good land in Egypt. And then, you know, ultimately the reconciliation of Joseph with his family. So we see Joseph constantly uh, being held captive and the redeemed, captive and the redeemed, captive and he redeemed, though it was really through no part of his own because he's always counted as righteous in, in all of those events. So it wasn't as if he, quote, rebelled in the sense that Adam did. We see in Exodus 1, chapter 1, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But they were, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So we see that after Joseph's rise to prominence, some generations later, because the Hebrews had multiplied so large, so it must have been 
lots of years uh, since that time. And now the Pharaoh is afraid and God's people go into captivity. So he seems to have made this covenant with Abraham. And that is continued through Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph comes to this prominence. But now the people fall away again and the covenant is questioned again. Uh, in the sense of what, what is God doing? How is he going to fulfill all these promises of the father of many nations? And then ultimately the Adamic covenant, which would have been that made with Adam and Eve, just to be fruitful and multiply and steward the you know universe I had created. So we find God's people held in captivity, questioning what God is doing, wondering where God is, to the point where now Pharaoh is seeking the death of all Hebrew males. So in many ways to snuff out the the snuff out the Hebrews altogether essentially is what would happen if he was successful. The New American commentary makes a great point here about the irony of the situation that Moses is uh, recording for us here is that God only blessed the Israelites here that they multiplied both in wealth and in person and uh, well you just say wow look at the fruits that are happening here but the irony is that it lands them into oppression because of the fear, the sin of Pharaoh. So the New American Commentary says it this way. The rapid growth was a glorious blessing of God in the faithful fulfillment of his creation, decrees, and patriarchal promises. So that's going to be the covenants that we'll talk about. How then could it get them in so much trouble? The short answer is that in a fallen world, the blessings of God are often so in conflict with the prevailing corrupt values of this world's culture that they function as a threat to those who are not aligned with God's will. The parade example of this phenomenon is the rejection of Jesus. He was the purest example of good that the world has seen, and yet God could send him to earth with the certain knowledge that he would be put to death by people who thought they were doing the world a favor. So recall last week I talked about uh, seeing Christ and I used the Emmaus Road story uh, as the biblical grounding for this, that all of the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Well, here's a good way to do that, where we see the rise of the Israelites and blessings. And you would think that um, a a Pharaoh would be like, wow, what great citizenry. Uh, Boy, aren't we lucky to have such great citizens that labor so diligently in our peaceful people. But presumably the fear of his own heart was losing power that the Jews would align with enemies and overthrow him. So that fear caused him to subjugate these people who were, by all accounts, just really, really good citizens. And we see how the sin and the fallenness of this world impinges upon and um, just mars whatever goodness God seems to do in it. And then, of course, we connect that to the gospel as uh, the New American Commentary does here by talking about Jesus as the ultimate good. And then he was killed by the people. Um, and you can highlight Caiaphas's comments. that not it better for one man to die than for all of us to suffer because they're f- afraid of Rome? And then the others were just afraid of this new teaching, seemingly new teaching, which was really ancient teaching that had been lost due to the um, constant compiling of tradition upon the pure essence of the law of God. So you had the teachers that were afraid of this blasphemer idolater. On the other side, they were afraid of Roman repercussions of Jesus's claims to divine authority and kingship. And all of that fear comes together in the crucifixion of Messiah. Uh, it's really just incredible. So in, in this text, even setting the stage 
for Moses' magnificent birth into all of this, we can be preaching the gospel to our people. So Douglas Stewart is the author of the, this New American Commentary I'm using to unpack some of this. And he talks about maybe the origins of the Egyptian fear here. And he says, and this is in reference to verse 8, um, Joseph almost certainly rose to power during the time of Hyksos, Pharaoh's outsiders who had invaded and conquered Egypt. After the expulsion of the Hyksos, an accomplishment much celebrated in Egyptian history, it is quite understandable that feeling against foreigners would run high. It is also understandable that a pharaoh who had expelled, or whose ancestors had expelled, hated foreign oppressors, would have had no sympathy for, or even interest in, honoring the memory of a foreigner who had served as Egypt's prime minister during the reign of one of those pharaohs. In other words, the Israelites were now foreigners in a country whose government hated foreigners, under a pharaoh who was surely determined to prevent what he saw as the miseries of the past from returning. Uh, and who would have had not the slightest sense of loyalty to any agreements his predecessors worked out with Joseph. So essentially, this idea um, of them not, they did not know Joseph, means that there was a rejection of any social contract with Joseph, which would have, you know, preserved his people there. So I guess, and I don't mean to take this on too far of a tangent, but logic is only as good as the assumptions that are that are behind it. Uh, for a long time, I really thought logic equal truth. I think that's often how we use it in the culture, but it's really just a test for validity so that if these assumptions do happen to be true, is are the conclusions I draw true? And so we can see how uh, when it's couched in sin and when it's couched in fear, um, and that's not fear of the one true God, but fear of, for this case, losing power, being overthrown, war, uh, whatever, maybe just don't want to get his people through more wars. So it's not even a, a bad thing, we would say. Nevertheless, because he's not in the in the presence of God, he doesn't know how to act accordingly. So his assumptions get corrupted. His logic, even though sounds, ends up in false conclusions that just wreak havoc uh, upon his people later, as we see in the plagues and in the, ultimately the Exodus. So there was a basis for this uh, frustration against foreigners because uh, we don't want to see Egypt taken again into being in the hands of foreign leaders. We want to see it with the pure Egyptian ethnicity. Uh, but that fear then leads to uh, an oppression of God's people. And God is only going to endure that for a time before he redeems his people at the most optimal moment. So we we have to always, always be teaching our people that there's lots and lots of things to fear in life. And this pharaoh legitimately feared the history of his people being overrun by foreigners. But the Bible calls us to fear in the Lord, to fear God, to fear the one true triune God. And we have to constantly encourage our people to face down their giants because they fear the Lord more than them. And we look at all these events in the Bible as our evidence of this, is that the safest place you can be even if um, there's horrors all around you, is precisely where God wants you to be because we have that protection of the Lord. And that's how, like we talked last week, someone like Stephen could preach a sermon and be stoned giving glory to God and forgiving his people, imitating Jesus there because he feared the Lord more than them. And we have to create a culture and teach scripture in such a way that our people come to fear the Lord, trusting God, 
in his deliverance as he's going to deliver his people through the exodus. So essentially the leader here was just pushing propaganda. Um, he's tying the Israelite foreigners, the Hebrews, to those Hyksos, Hyksos people, uh, which were mountain people. That's what the word means. Uh, they come from the mountains of Canaan. And so we had, the, um, or later will have that be the promised land of the Hebrew people. But for now, even though these Hyksos was the title given to these foreigners who took over this, the Delta region of Egypt on the eastern side, maybe the Asian side of the uh, Delta in Egypt, um, they're being equated one to one with the Israelites. So even though the Israelites were good citizens and uh, respected the Egyptian order, though not worshiping the Egyptian gods, there was built a distrust for them as an extension of these people. It is significant that Moses uses this Levite language uh, to point out that his father and mother were Levites, so he was purely Levite. Uh, and then we think about later where the Levites are made the priests of Egypt, the clergy. Um, it, it's certainly significant that Moses is in some ways defending his role as the spokesperson of God to say that uh, the law that would be given later through him was even satisfied before that law itself had been given in that his parents were of that tribe uh, of Levi. So it is significant that Moses defends his authority there. He defends his lineage there. And then if we wanted to tie that to the Gospels, we would see the lineage defended of Jesus, um, that he was of the kingly line of David and so forth. So there's certainly value in helping our people to understand that uh, for these key figures of the Bible, who are going to be these dramatic deliverers and sort of uh, peak moments in Israelite history, that it is significant where they come from because it testifies to the Lord's faithfulness. It testifies to testifies to the Lord's the Lord's work in these people. So I mentioned earlier about a specific word that's interesting in the way Moses recounts this narrative of his birth. What we read is that Moses was put in a basket and then set into the reeds there uh, in the waters. There is a particular Hebrew word that can be used for baskets, and it's tzal. Uh, so Moses could have chosen to use that term there to say he was put into this basket and sent down or put into the reeds there in verse 3. But he doesn't. He chooses the word teva, teva. And that's significant because that word really means ark. And it's the same word used for ark in the days of Noah, when Noah built his ark and God redeemed the Noah family from the flood and preserved them and then made the Noahic covenant that they would now be fruitful and multiply, out of which we then get Abraham um, and then on down to Moses here. And so Moses is intentionally connecting what happened to him in his birth and his, mo and his mother putting him in this basket with the Noahic Ark. Uh, so we could read that instead of she put him into a basket would be to say that she put him into an Ark. So the way it would read then would be when she could hide him no longer. So it took three months and she was worried again that the Pharaoh's people would find her male son who would then be killed. But when she could hide him no longer, she took for him an Ark made of bulrushes and then, um, you know, fitted it to be set there in the reeds and float on the waters. So Moses is tying himself to Noah 
in the way Noah is saved and delivered through the flood. Likewise, and again, through water, though I may be stretching it there, in the Red Sea, Noah's going to deliver the people of God again. Now, but it won't be one family, it'll be the sort of entire family of the Israelites. And so Moses was set in these reeds. Uh, presumably his mother was just hiding him and then I guess was going to come back and get him and just keep doing this forever until he was of age or something that he could walk around without threats on his life. But nevertheless, uh, an Egyptian ends up finding him. And of course, that Egyptian is Pharaoh's daughter. And uh, what's, what's very interesting is that the text tells us that Moses's sister is the one that makes the suggestion to Pharaoh's daughter. So that's in verse seven. Then his sister, referring to the child, referring to Moses, uh, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? So I don't know that um, Moses's sister was necessarily a servant of Pharaoh's daughter, but presumably she was kind of loitering around where Moses' ark was settled there on the water to keep an eye over him. And then she acts quickly. So I don't know how old she was here. I mean, for it not to be weird, I guess she would need to be uh, like a child, you know, something between eight, nine, eleven, something like that. Uh, so she was just playing around the area, keeping an eye on her brother. And then she quickly makes a suggestion. And of course, she goes back to her own mother. And, and uh, Moses' own mother is the one that gets to nurse him. Which, in the ancient Near East, in these cultures, was usually three to four years. So uh, the, the mother, in an attempt to save his life, ends up getting full-time access to him for three or four years. Now, she knew she would have to give him up eventually, as the princess wanted to adopt him for herself. But she would still get those three to four years with him. And we see God's preserving of Moses in that. So the threat comes down from Pharaoh. Moses um, is hidden for three months. The parents of Moses uh, are scared and afraid that he's going to be found and killed. So they try to hide him, I guess, by day or at search hours or something. If the Egyptian guard was coming through, ends up being found by an Egyptian namely Pharaoh's daughter, and then ultimately is adopted by her and in the palace, though he gets his childhood there, at least up until probably age four or so, with his own immediate family, Miriam, Aaron, uh, and his parents. So it's, it's just it's really incredible the way God was preserving the one who would faithfully obey. So I didn't notice I said faithfully obey, uh, maybe I should say, well, ultimately faithfully obey, because he certainly did barter a lot, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> with not wanting to do things right away. We're going to see that in the coming weeks. Uh, he certainly pushed back. I can't do that. I can't do that. But he always ultimately did it. And God initiates all that by preserving him here, giving him into Pharaoh's house, uh, where he grows up in his formative uh, trained years. So would become familiar with all of Egypt's gods so that he knew exactly what he was doing when he was bringing these plagues against Egypt. And I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic is that each one of those plagues is just aimed directly at a perceived Egyptian deity. So what we really have in all of that is a cosmic battle where Yahweh is saying, I am the one true God, and I'm going to sort of obliterate all of your other preconceived or all of your other assumed gods and idolatry through the forms of these plagues. Uh, so it's, it's a cosmic battle of who is the one true deity and then we ultimately see the culmination of that with the deliverance of god's people through the red sea 
by Moses. Another interesting thing in this text is the naming of Moses. And so it says that she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So unlike modern times where we pick names before, I say we as if I have kids, but people who have children, uh, like have a list of names before they have the kid and they uh, pick the name. Like these are our top favorites for boys. These are our favorites for girls. And it's a big deal. In the ancient Near East, usually names weren't given until after the fact. Um, and the names were tied up to some significant around, some significance around the birth, um, the birth event. And so for her, she found this kid in the water. So she names him Moses. And the significance of that is twofold. One, because it means to draw out. Two, because it is also an ending attached to Egyptian names. So the Egyptian of Mosi is to beget a son or it just sort of means son. And so it would be like son of someone. Uh, so the example Stuart gives us in the New American Commentary is like Ah Mosi or Tut Mosi, which would be the Egyptian derivation of these other names would be son of Ah, son of Tut. Uh, so likewise, she gives him this Egyptian name, which just means son or beget. But it also means Masah in the Hebrew, which would mean to draw out, um, to find out in the water, to find to find in the water. So she pulls him out of the water. So it's almost a dual meaning where he is the son from the water, so to speak. So now for the apologetics moment, I told you there is a little story about uh, Sargon of Akkade. So just to paraphrase his story. And so it's a Mesopotamian work known as the Sargon Birth Legend, and it offers a very similar story to that of um, Moses. And so this is the story of Sargon the Great. He was an Akkadian emperor who ruled a number of Sumerian city-states around 2000 BC. And so his rule was centuries before the time of Moses. And so again, we're going to talk a lot about the dating in the coming weeks. We're going to talk a lot about the dating of the Exodus because it is crucial uh, for a lot of these arguments against the faith about who borrowed from who, made up stories, etc. Uh, we're not going to get into that today, but just know that this ruler was centuries before Moses arrived on the scene. And uh, to summarize the story, it's essentially that um, his mom was a, a high priestess, so she wasn't supposed to have babies, ends up having a baby. And because of that, she needs to get rid of him. So she creates a basket just like Moses' mother did. And she puts him into the river. Uh, and and she didn't hide him in the reeds in order to go back and get him, like it seems like Moses' parents did. But she put him in the river so the river would carry him away from her. And then he was drawn out of the river and, and was raised as the adopted son of the king. And then he was this destined, destined ruler. And there's a few other stories. That'll be the most famous one. But of these miraculous births, sort of... Um, some secret event of this birth and then being set to a river and then being found, recovered and adopted. And so the argument against Christianity and against the Bible would say that, well, whoever wrote Exodus is just borrowing the story of Sargon of Acadia, Sargon the Great, and is, is putting Moses into that story. So it's all mythology uh, and traditions for their own rulers or propaganda for the Israelites' own people. These aren't true realities. They're just borrowing from the other uh, cultures and people around them. So I go to Michael S. Heiser 
which is a scholar of uh, ancient Near East. He actually worked for Lagos, and, and Lagos.com is a, a great place to find a lot of good articles by biblical scholars uh, on these on these sorts of stories. And so if you go to blog.lagos.com, you can find a lot of great articles. And this one was published April 4th, 2017, so just last year. And so Heiser, I think I'm saying his name right, it's H-E-I-S-E-R, but Michael Heiser uh, got his Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible and Semitic Languages from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He earned an M.A. in Ancient History from the University of Pennsylvania, where he studied ancient Israel and Egyptology. And then got another M.A. from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Hebrew Studies. And then he went on to attend Dallas Theological Seminary. And so his field and his discipline just is uh, ancient Egypt, the biblical languages, and the ancient Hebrew people. And sort of tangentially to that would be the ancient Near East cultures as well. So he argues that it is very unlikely that Moses borrowed from the Sargon the Great story um, with respect to this. And the reason is simple, is that even though Sargon the Great ruled centuries before Moses ever arrived, the evidence of that story was well after the time of Moses. Okay, So, so, so the real Sargon the Great lived centuries before Moses, but the stories about Sargon the Great only appear well after Moses. So if anything, it looks like it's the other way around. And so here's what uh, Dr. Heiser says. Although ancient Sumerian accounts of Sargon the Great date back to his lifetime, the legendary account of his birth is known only from four fragmentary tablets, three from Neo-Assyrian period, which was 934 to 605 BC, and one from the Neo-Babylonian period, 626 to 539 BC. During the Neo-Assyrian period, an Assyrian king took the name Sargon II and likely commanded the legends to be written about his namesake. And so this would have been the 720s to the um, 705 dates BC. So this later Sargon commissioned, so this is what Heiser's arguing anyway, and I think he's likely right based on the actual physical evidence we have. This later Sargon, Sargon II, commissioned a writing of the original Sargon or Sargon the Great in these legendary stories of which he is now the predecessor. So by doing so, he would have linked himself to the ancient hero and glorified himself as a revived Sargon figure. This would suggest that the birth legend was composed for propaganda purposes well after the biblical story of Moses. So one, just in the defense of the Bible, we would argue that if anyone borrows from anyone, although I mean, maybe we can't say either way, that's usually where you want to end up on these. But if there was borrowing that happened, it was likely that Sargon II borrowed this story from the Hebrews. Uh, and it would make sense because I believe the Hebrews were in captivity under uh, for a time under Sargon II. So he may have known their story because he had um, connections with their culture. But we also see the radical difference of the Bible compared to other texts and other poems. Uh, so so here, here's what Heiser continues to argue is the real significance of this, not just that we can defend the historicity of the Bible uh, through archaeology and the Bible continually shows itself to be true and original, uh, but that it is so radically different from all of these other cultures. So he argues that these other cultures use these stories to introduce a figure who rises from mundane origins after gaining favor from fate or from the divine. 
the common elements of these rags to riches stories help ancient audiences identify with a central figure and develop respect for his achievements. However, notice what happens to Moses is that he doesn't end up that way. It's not merely a rags to riches because Moses is then exiled. And we're going to talk about that next week. But it wasn't just rags to riches. Wow, he's a great ruler now. But Moses was rags to riches adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. But then later, he's run out of town after he murders the Egyptian. He's run out of town and he's in obscurity. So it's really not a blessing for him. But then he goes back and leaves the people out. And then he wanders in the wilderness and never sees the promised land. So he doesn't even get to see the ultimate fruit of his labors which is to lead his people into the land that God promised them. So the, the biblical stories and the biblical use of um, just any kind of story, if they pattern it after another ancient Near East, and I'm not saying that's exclusively what happened here, but I do think the Bible is very polemical against these other cultures and their leaders and these other cultures and their gods. But the Bible always elevates the work of God. It's not about Moses. It's about God who chose to use Moses. Uh, so Heiser points out that the story is repatterned because in the wilderness of Midian, Yahweh appears to Moses, who's an obscure shepherd, slow speech and tongue. And then he tells Moses to act Moses to act as his spokesperson before Pharaoh and lead his people out of Egypt. So Moses stands out against the stories of the ancient cultures because he isn't promoted like their chosen figures, but saved and demoted to poverty so that he can lead others to salvation. He is the new archetype of the chosen hero, and this will be the chosen hero of Yahweh, the one true triune God, one who was promoted only for the benefit of others. Over and against the stories of worldly kingdoms, Moses' story articulates God's remarkable work for his kingdom, God's kingdom. His values are different from ours, and as is often the case in retrospect, we can be grateful for that. And so it's not about raising up some figure who is great. It's all about pointing to God. It's all about pointing for us to the salvation of Jesus Christ through the testimony of the spirit, which comes by way of testimony of us in many ways. Uh, so we can live out the model of Moses is that we as kingdom people can testify to the truth of God and, and the work of God ought to be seen in our life. And isn't that just what it means to disciple someone else? is that you bear witness to God's work in your life and you demonstrate it by living out a faith that is Christ-like, trying to live out a life that is Christ-like. So just like Moses is chosen to point to God for the redemption and reconciliation of the Israelite people and their, um, their, their liberation from oppression to be reconciled to God, likewise we can be that because people are oppressed under the lies of bondage or Satan. And we come with the gospel and bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And we can become liberators in the same sense that Moses was pointing to the Son as the means of salvation.